Welcome to the Rough Road Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Steele. Today, I'm joined by my uncle, Don. He's actually my dad's cousin, but I've always called him uncle. Uh, Don, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Me? Yes, you. Donald F. Gavin? Yeah, that's you. <laughs> uh, Grew up here in town, right? Yeah, born in 1936, two years after Lindsay. Right. He he come here just to give me a running start that's what he did gotcha prepare the way for you yeah and lived in delta for 17 years and and uh graduated from delta high school in 1955 joined the air force uh probably like lindsey <laughs> I'd only been out of Miller County about six times before that, and uh, right away they sent me to California to train. Where at? And basic training at Parks Air Force Base in Oakland, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there from January to April. Uh, they was trying to decide what they wanted to train me to do, and. They checked all of the the tests and everything, which uh, that being the case, they should have sent me back home because I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> but I, well, they'll teach what you want you to do, right? So they checked the test and they says, "Well, I was qualified to be, be in intricate electronics, such as telephones and everything." But then they checked a little deeper and found out I was colorblind. You can't be bl- colorblind and work in electronics. <laughs> I'm surprised they let you in the Air Force so and colorblind. They went to another option, which I thought was kind of stupid. They said, well, you need to, d- need to be in clerical work. They didn't check the school record, or they found out, no, that's not right. <laughs> but they sent me to Francis E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, to a stock record specialist school, uh, being in supply. Well, I was there f- when they sent me there. It was in April, and when I got there, uh, it was nighttime, and so I checked into the building office, and they told me go down to a particular barracks and pick a bunk, and and come and check in in the morning. So I went down there, and I, I should have been concerned because they issued me three army wool blankets, and normally you only get two. Well, it was dark in the barracks, and I made me a bunk up and went to bed, and it was cold. I was about to freeze to death. So I got in my duffel bag and got out my military wool overcoat, and stacked that on me it, along with the three blankets. And it was still cold. And I was shaking all night long. So the next morning when it got light enough to see, I looked up and right above my head, there was no window. <laughs> so the air was coming right in there. And, and that was fresh air. Well, after getting oriented and getting into school and everything, uh, when I was in high school, I took type in school for three years maybe that's how they got me into clerical work i don't know but i can tell you that when i got out of high school if i really pushed it i could type 27 words a minute 
they don't like teach me. the same as the Air Force does. <laughs> but we had to learn to type there. And when when I uh, got into that, and after being there from April to August, it jumped from 27 words a minute to 60 words a minute. And that's like riding a bicycle. Once you learn to type, you always learn to type. Right. <laughs> but uh, uh, while I was there, uh, Audie Murphy came there. He was a Congressional Medal of Honor uh, recipient out of the Second World War. An actor. Probably yeah. the most decorated soldier in in that war or probably in any war since then but but uh it was kind of interesting because when he come there having having that medal around his neck the base commander catered to him like he was the boss but he wasn't there very long and and uh but it was just interesting the impact of that that medal had on was he day. just visiting or or was he stationed there no, he was he out, was, right? He was a civilian. Okay. And he just stopped there to visit. And, and he just uh, happened to wear the medal. When they found his out neck. that he was there, everybody just everything centered around him. Hmm. But so finally after getting through the school and which amazed me I was able to pass it. Uh then they decide where they're gonna send you. Well, where they decided they was going to send me was Japan. And there again, like I say, I hadn't been out of Miller County a, a lot. And now I'm going to Japan. It, it was crazy. But they said, well, you need to take some shots before you go over there. And I think this one day I had to take 14 shots that had to give you immunity to some of the diseases and stuff that was in Japan. But um, for about a week after that, I couldn't hardly move my arms. But uh, they put us on a... Well, they sent us home for leave for just a little while. And, and uh, then I knew I had to go to Travis Air, Fo Air Force Base in California. And... and uh, I remember I I uh, got down to the bus station in Salt Lake and got a bus ticket to, to California, and I thought, well, geez, here I am, 17 years old now. I, mom and dad, or mom and my dad smoked, and all my sisters smoked. I can smoke if I want to. So I went in the bus station, and then they had... Uh, cigarette machines in there and so I bought me a pack of cigarettes and thought well I'm grown up I'm gonna act grown up now so I got on the bus headed out to, to California and, and uh, probably was fortunate the pack of cigarettes I I got was cools they are nasty and we had to change buses in Winnemucca Nevada and and uh, me and the pack of cigarettes parted company then, so, and I, I never did have a problem with that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, got to Travis and, and got scheduled out on a plane, and it was a C-97, which is actually a cargo plane. 
it didn't have posh seats in it or anything, but uh, and it was quite a large plane. We took off and landed in Hawaii, and uh, that was kind of interesting because we had to wait a little while to refuel the plane, and and uh, the we was right on on the beach at, at Honolulu, and. Uh, no, the sand was just white, really nice looking, and I looked up around the edge of the island, and uh, this little black cloud come floating around there, following the edge of the, edge of the island that come over and rained on us and kept going. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, this is probably not a place I'd like to live. And so we loaded up and... We had to stop at Wake Island, uh, which is really a small island. And the runway started on one side of the island and ended on the other side of the island. So when you landed, if you landed here and you made it down to the other end and you turned around to come back to the hangar, your wing was out over the ocean. Oh, wow. So it, if, you, if the pilot made a slip up, it wouldn't be fun, <laughs> mm -hmm. but when he got almost there, he realized that he was too high for where he wanted to land at, and so he had to drop really fast. That was spooky, because your ears was popping, <laughs> mm -hmm. and anyway, we got got landed and refueled, and finally got to Tokyo International. Was this all in commercial airlines? No. Military. military okay got to tokyo international and then they put us on <laughs> on uh, a military five by truck and to go to tachikawa japan and that that had actually two bases that, that had a run runway one down in between the two of them one of them was fingcom Air Force Base and the other one was Tachikawa Air Force Base, but the runway was between them. And over there they drive on the left-hand side of the road, which was kind of novel all by itself. But, uh, and then I'd never seen that many people in my whole life. I mean, they just like fleas, you know. Nah. You couldn't de decipher who was where and what, but anyway, they got us to the Tachikawa Air Force Base and put us in these barracks that, that are actually quonsa, but they look like the inside of a gun tube. You know, they're round right. and they're metal, and uh, that's where we stayed at. I I uh, was assigned to work in supply in the uh, clerical part of it rather than the warehouse and and uh, the problem I had is as graduating from good old Delta High School uh, I couldn't remember nothing <laughs> <laughs> and, and I attributed it to Mrs. Reed our second grade school teacher but she'd tell me something and I wouldn't be able to remember it and she kept telling me I couldn't remember nothing well, it got to where I believed it, 
And so there for about a year over there, if I was told to go to the warehouse to do something, if I didn't write it down, I'd forget what I was supposed to do when I got there. So everything I I did, I had to write it down, or I I wouldn't retain it because I just believed I couldn't remember nothing. <laughs> but anyway, uh, was there for oh prob probably a little over a year, and, and a, one of my friends is from Georgia, and me and him and one other guy. Uh, decided that we needed to do something to make things a little bit better. So a guy was being transferred back to the United States and he had a 47 Ford car, 1947. And he didn't want a lot for it, so we pitched in and between the three of us went and bought it. Well, the speed limit on Japan, the whole island of Japan is 25 miles an hour, unless you're in one of those electric trains and then it's a lot that was bullet but, trains uh, it was good for us because we was able to see things that a lot of them other guys didn't see we could go up to parks and resorts and and things like that and even down to yokohama and different places and we could drive there and uh as long as we had somebody tell us how to get there and get back but but uh the one day there's three of us that decided to go up to this one park up in the mountains and it had a, quite a big lake there. And uh, we went and rented a, a little boat with a motor on it. And we got in that and the one kid, he was, he was about two thirds nuts anyway, but he started up and we went all the way across that lake, which was probably a mile and a half. And uh, he seen these bamboo growing on the edge of the lake. And he said, let's stop and get one. And I said, no, I don't think so. Oh, yeah, they'd be okay. So we got over there and, and pulled into the bank so we could cut one. Of the, and these bamboo were probably 12, 14 feet tall and probably three inches around. Wow. So he he got one, whittled it off, and was coming back to the boat and the motor stopped and no problem we can start it <laughs> so he got his bamboo he come back and got in the boat and got the rope for the starter <laughs> and he pulled and pulled and pulled and it wouldn't start and I, we're a mile and a half away from where we started at <laughs> and and Finally, I said, well, we had two little sharp paddles, and I said, we better start paddling back that way. And he kept trying, kept trying. Finally, he gave a big yank, and he pulled the rope right out of the motor, so then it wasn't going to start. Well, between the three of us taking turns paddling, we made it back about a third of the way. Uh, <laughs> I thought, well, we're just going to die out here because we can't make it back. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I guess the guy that rented us the boat, he's seen us out there, and so he came over and hooked on us and told us back back to the dock, and, and we never did keep the bamboo. 
that he had to have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we did see a lot of different things, and we got first off acquainted with the church there. Uh, like Lindsay could say that we never were active in the church until he got up to be 17, 18 years old. And, but there was one lieutenant there that uh, found out that I was a member of the church, and I think I was a priest. And he invited me to come over to his house on some evenings and read and study the Book of Mormon, and which I really didn't know anything about. But, but uh, occasionally they'd have meetings branch meetings on on the base and could go to them but uh, that's the only thing I really had anything to do with the church until I got back from Japan well after staying there for two years uh, got orders to transfer out and and uh, my orders were for Georgia well this good friend of mine was from Georgia so we made it a commitment that when I come back to the States before he did and and he his commitment was to he would stop and see me and then when I got back to Georgia I'd go see him but he was being discharged and I was being reassigned and uh, anyway he did that he he stopped here and he he couldn't believe Back in Georgia, you know, if you go hunting rabbits, you hunt them with a shotgun and, and beagles. Right. Out here, he says, you hunt them with twenty-two with one shot. He says, you can't kill a rabbit with one shot and a twenty-two. And I said, yeah. It's because anyway, he's not a good shot. That's why. <laughs> I took him around, and, and he was quite impressed with out here. And, and uh, he finally went and left here and visited another friend in Texas and then went to Georgia. And then I... I stayed here till after the deer hunt, and then I got on a bus and went headed for Georgia. Uh, there again, that's 2,300 miles away. Right. <laughs> and and uh, I had never been in the South, so I didn't know anything about it. But this was in. Uh, you didn't pick up your friend Cool, take with you to Georgia. The what? Your friend Cool out of the vending machine? No. No. I didn't have any more problem with them. <laughs> <laughs> that was the nicest thing I ever put in my mouth. But but uh, when I went back there, it was like 1957. Well, the civil rights thing was in big, big swing back there right. then. I mean, there was segregations and everything else going on and, and uh, a lot of protests and marches and and uh, Martin Luther King was in his heyday and and uh, and I I'd never had a problem with colored people. Matter of fact in Japan one of my best friends was a colored guy. Right. And I never they never in my mind that there would be that kind of segregation or distinction between them. But I stopped in uh, where? I have no idea. <laughs> me either. It left me there for a minute. <laughs> but anyway, it's in it's in the south in Kentucky. They stopped there in the bus, and and I went into 
to get breakfast. And, you know, you get back breakfast back here, you get bacon and eggs, ham and eggs, uh, hash browns, whatever, right. toast. So I, I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll get ham and eggs. And so they brought it, and I couldn't understand how come they put the mush on the plate. The you grits. Know, cream of wheat. <laughs> you know, was it cream of wheat or grits? I, I thought, that's crazy. Why did they put mush on the plate? And uh, come to find out, I, I, didn't eat it. I didn't eat it. I just thought they made a mistake. And then when I got to Georgia, I went to my friend's house, and they lived kind of back in the woods, and, and uh, I told him about it. I said, that's, that's really crazy. He said, no. He says, that's grits. That's the way they eat that rather than hash browns. And I said, oh, yeah? So he told me how to eat it. You know, you put butter and salt and pepper on it and put your eggs on there and mix it up if you want, and away you go. And, and I tried it, and I said, man, that's good. I, I love grits. He, he found that out over <laughs> over in Japan because we went to the mess hall one day, and I I got a bowl and put some cake in it and put milk in it. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm eating this cake. You don't eat cake like that. I said, you ever try it? No. <laughs> well, don't knock it until you try it. And he sat there and watched me eat that. Finally, he says, well, he'd try it. So he went and got a little piece of cake and put it in a little bowl of milk and and ate it. And then he got up, <laughs> went back and got a bigger piece of cake with a little more milk. <laughs> <laughs> and I, probably if he's still alive, that's probably the way he eats cake now. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, I was there for, oh, probably almost a year and I met a girl that was from the south and we dated and finally ended up that that uh, we got married and, and uh, our first child was born there in uh, what 1958 and uh but she was of a different belief than I was. She was Baptist, and, and our first child, I wasn't active in the church or anything, and and uh, so he was he was blessed by one of the members in the branch there, and uh, and I've always regretted that. I I always thought that I should have been to the point that I could have done that. And, but anyway, uh, it was a little touchy there because, I mean, you're only an airman first class. That's like a E5. Right. And uh, so you don't have a lot of money, but, of course, things weren't that expensive. But, but uh, I was assigned to... A, a mess hall uh, over the food that comes in that they process or fix for the mess hall. Well, our mess hall would feed 2,000 troops each meal. 
and so we we had a lot of food come in and and I had to keep track of how much come in, how much went out, what it went out for, what meals it went for, who signed for it, and all that. But anyway, I didn't really care for that a whole lot. But one time, one summer, they needed a a lifeguard at the NCO pool. And I said, well, that sounds good. So I put in for that. And I got it. So that one whole summer... I didn't have to deal with anybody <laughs> in the squadron or anything. I just went to the swim pool. That's what that's what I did the whole summer. About the time I was to get out of that, then I got new orders that sent me to uh, Zaragoza, Spain, and I thought, "Who, Spain? That's an exotic place." I mean, you hear about all these and see these movies about all of this stuff in Spain and in Madrid and and uh, Tarragona and Pamplona and, and uh, all these different places really really exotic and and but at that time Franco was was a dictator in in Spain and so there for a long time the military people in in uh, US military couldn't wear the uniform downtown, so they give them a, a bonus to buy civilian clothes. And I said, well, that, that's even better. I mean, because they give you a wardrobe. And, uh, but just before I got there, they canceled that. <laughs> I didn't get no clothes out of it. But uh, I was there. Oh. I bet I, I couldn't have been there more than two or three weeks, but the family wasn't there, and so they put me in the barracks. And uh, this one day, I got a knock on the door and answered the door, and this guy was there and asked me if what my name was, you know. And I told him, and he says, uh, "You're a member of the church." And I said, "Yeah." And when I'd get, when I'd come back from Japan. I went to church here in Delta, and uh, E.D. Harris was a bishop in the Third Ward. And I'd never talked anywhere, but he had me talk in church one Sunday, and it was on a fast Sunday. And and uh, then he said, well, we need to get you ordained to an elder. So they did. So in the process of that, the guy in Spain got a card that said that I was coming, that I was an elder, which they don't have a whole lot of them over there. Right. And so he asked if if I was an elder, and I said, yeah. And I didn't really know a whole lot what about what I believed in or even about the church for that matter. But uh, we talked for a while, and he says, well, we have a branch here that meets on the base, on Sunday, he says, uh, uh, like to invite you to come to it. And I said, well, okay. And really, my intention was not to do that. I mean, I said, okay, probably to satisfy him. But but uh, he said, good, I'll come and get you. <laughs> and I, oh, okay. <laughs> so on Sunday morning, he showed up and, and come and got me. He did that for 
three or four weeks. And then he says, well, he's going to come get me the next Sunday. And I said, I think I can make it because it's only about half a mile to the the chapel from the from the barracks there. And uh, so I started going there. Well, that branch only had 27 members. But they had the full church program. You know, they they had the, their sacrament meetings and and that and then they had the primary they had the uh, Sunday school priesthood everything and they all functioned with just a few people uh, the thing that impressed me about this guy that came to get me is named Herbert A. Hancock and I guess I'd rem- I'll remember that the rest of my life but, but uh, the unique thing about him he was from like Arizona and uh he was just a hillbilly, but he had a something about his personality that that if you wrote a word down on a piece of paper and give it to him, and he was to talk on whatever it was you wrote down, he'd stand up there and talk for an hour, and it'd be extremely interesting, and he could just do it right off the cuff, and I thought. If I could do that, that would be the it. Right. And and I decided the only way that he could do that before you can get anything out, you got to put a lot in. Yep. And so he he had studied a lot, and he had he had been in Korea, and he'd been shot down twice. He was a crew chief on on a bomber, and uh, and over there he was a maintenance crew chief and he was like a E8 but smart really smart and he had his family there and he had his wife and I think two boys and and uh, so after church was over with he'd invite me and take me over to his house and his wife had fixed dinner and it was just something that I hadn't experienced anywhere and uh but i uh i got to go to church and and got a different level of understanding about the principles of the gospel and and uh and for all intent and purposes it changed my whole life my life's never been the same since then but after about six months, then I got my family over there, and and I don't know how to explain her personality, but she liked to drink. She liked, she wouldn't have anything to do with the church. So on Sunday, I'd go to church. She'd stay home with the, the kids. Our second child was born over there uh, about no, three months after they got there. And so, he, in reality, he was a Spanish national. He was born in Spain. So he had to be naturalized to get citizenship in the United States. And that required... Even, even though he was born on the base, isn't that American soil? Didn't matter. He was in Spain. Mm. But we had to go through, and I think we had to go down to their... Uh, legal office and he had 12 Spanish birth certificates 
And then, he, of course, he had the birth certificate, the base, and, and, a, and a confirmation of his his uh, citizenship. And, and that's been called for several times, you know, since we come back to the States. But... But uh, when I'd go to the go to church, I just leave them home, and I think what triggered a breakdown was uh, this one Sunday I got up and fixed a, a meal and had it cooking so that it'd be done when I come home. But when I come home, uh, it got done okay, but. Then she invited all the neighbors to come over, and they ate my my dinner that I'd cooked. And then they was gone again. <laughs> well, that upset me. And I told her about it, and she flew off the handle, and she said something, and I slapped her face. And from there, it just went downhill, and they finally decided that she had a mental breakdown of some kind that that she couldn't stay in Spain and so they got her shipped back to the United States to Georgia where she was from uh, along with the kids and because they had came over there then I was required to stay there for three years instead of regular two years well I told them that because she was back here that that uh, she probably need me here more than I needed to be there, and so I went through a pile of paperwork and and uh, got sent back to the states and discharged. Uh, went to Georgia and and tried to get work there and couldn't get anything, so I come out to Utah, and that's when I got reacquainted yeah, with my father. Lindsay and I hadn't seen any each other since well we seen him we seen each other when I come back from Japan he was he was in the army then and I stopped at my sister's place in and uh, I forget where it was at but but he come there and, and visit and I think he was still in the army but that was when I was on my way to Georgia uh then I didn't see him again until after he'd got out of the army. Then he'd got married and and uh, was living in West Salt Lake. And uh, when I come out here, I didn't have a place to live, so I went and stayed with them for was a while. He, was he married to my mom or his no, first wife? Valnita. Okay. And uh, that was a mistake. <laughs> that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I eat. He had a struggle with that, but uh, it was is there again. It was with him, like it was with me. There's a complete separation of belief structure. What she believed in, what he believed in. Right. And they, and the same with me. They, it wouldn't come together. Wouldn't mesh. And uh, but finally, when my family got out here. Uh, I got a place to live, and it was on Redwood Road. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to find it now because it was just a little cracker box house. And I, I'd got a job with with Hercules Powder Company uh, out in Magna, 
and uh, worked with with uh, Minuteman missiles and uh, the buildup of the the missile case and uh, and I was working nights, but they had me up up to uh, by Bountiful. There's a place up there where they wind the case the missile cases and. Uh, so I was working at nighttime, and I I come back one night, and what she told me that she just wanted a divorce, and I says, "Well, if I send you back to your your mother's place in Georgia, I said, could you work it out?" And she said, "I don't know, maybe." And I says, "Okay." So I scrounged up some money and. Bought tickets for her and the kids to on the train to go back to Georgia, and and uh, they left, and and uh, then I was just here by myself. Uh, I I talked about it to different guys. I even talked talked to the bishop and told him what the situation was, and and it was probably three months after they left that. That uh, the bishop called in Eldon Eliason and told him the situation, and he says, "What do you suggest?" And, and it was about Easter time, and he says, "Well, you could try it." He says, "Send her a Easter gift, a dress or something, and then go out there." And uh, so I, okay. So I did that, and I had a, a Volkswagen car that I brought back from Spain with me, and, and I traded it and got a, a a Lincoln. I think about a '54 Lincoln, <laughs> but but I loaded everything that that we had left and and uh, headed back to Georgia, and. Uh, uh, I got there at a night in the night time and went to where her mother's house at, but she wasn't there. And then at about 12 o'clock night, she showed up. She was with some other guy. So I decided this was probably not going to work. And uh, so I stayed there for about two weeks. And like I say, she, she drank a lot. And finally, I decided, well, if I showed her I could drink if I wanted to, then maybe that might change things. So this one night we went out, and if if you could pour it out of a bottle and, and drink it, I did. I never got where well, I didn't know what I was doing. The only thing, it felt like my cheeks was numb. <laughs> and so about midnight, we finally went back to the house, and... Uh, Next morning, I got up with the idea I was going to fix something to eat, and I could feel myself getting sick. And I mean, it wasn't a little bit sick. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. <laughs> Funny, later in the day, I'd went out, went to my friend's house, and told him about it. And I said, "Man." If you feel like this, if you drink it, it ain't never going to happen. And he said, well, we're going out to the commissary. You want to go with us? And I said, yeah. 
So I went to commissary with him. And he had two kids by then. <laughs> he had, by the, this is the same friend that got discharged in Georgia, and then he reenlisted and was stationed where I was at. But uh, I sat there in the car while he went into commissary and thought there was no reason why I shouldn't die right now because <laughs> I was so sick. And that lasted all day long and clear into the night. <laughs> and I says, I told her the next day, I says, I'm going back to Utah. It's not worth it. I says, you're not worth it. I said, nobody in the world is worth this. I says, I'll leave the kids here because I won't, don't want to pull them back and forth, but I'm going back to Utah. Uh, then I had call mom and see if she wouldn't send me enough for a bus ticket <laughs> and, and finally come back here and and that's after a while that's how I met Carol uh, I'd, I'd known Carol when, when she was about 12 years old just before I was going to Japan uh, freckle faced kid with pigtails <laughs> and uh, but I, I knew her brother just like Lindsay uh, same age brother right? Roy uh, <coughs> or close he was part of our part of your group well he was part of my sloughing technique in school we knew that if we sloughed school on Friday afternoon that if you come back on Monday they'd turn the page so they wouldn't know you was absent so you wouldn't need an excuse to get back in <laughs> <laughs> we used that a lot. Friday was a good fishing day. <laughs> I don't know if Lindsay ever got into that, but me and Roy did. <laughs> but, but anyway, when when I'd come back to Utah, and, and uh, it was terrible thinking about about the kids, thinking that they might grow up, that you might not ever see them again, and they may never know you or, or have anything to do with you, and and. Uh, and you just get really depressed and mom would tell me well go do something she said go down to the pool hall and shoot some pool or whatever you just get out of here go do something well they used to have a place out here called Woodrow Hall the dance hall and it's just an old frame building that at different times they'd gather there and have dances. country dances right? and right now Key Church Repair Shop down here mm -hmm. is where it used to be. <laughs> and it's just across the street from where that cubing plant's at. Yep, I know exactly where that's at. But uh, went in there, and of course, Butch and Parley and a lot of the guys were there. And Butch and Parley's my dad's uh, half-brothers. Yeah. Well, Butch, yeah. And Parley, both. Bo yeah, both of them. But... Uh, of course, <laughs> they were in there doing their thing. They they probably had a little beer on the side, but uh, we just they had a, a pot belly stove out there that they had a fire in it to keep keep the place warm and it would. But there's quite a lot of people in there dancing, and and while it was there, Carol come in with her friend Sondra Terry, and. Uh, I didn't know who she was, because now she is 17, 
and I hadn't seen her since she was 12, so <laughs> I didn't know who she was, but I thought, well, I'll ask her to dance. And uh, so they started playing a song, and I, I can still feel or experience what went through when, when I asked her to dance, I reached and touched her hand, and from that day to this, I haven't thought one more thing about the girl I was married to. Nothing is, there's no feeling there at all. It's just gone. Well, that was the start of it because her dad knew that I'd been married, and for me to date her was not, not in acceptable. The program. <laughs> and, uh, oh, we we went to church the next day and we talked a lot, and, and it wasn't very long before we decided that we wanted to get married. Well, she was going to beauty school up in Salt Lake, and. Uh, I can remember the day we went to her house and and I knew I had to tell her dad that, that we wanted to get married. And uh, he treated me like crap before that because if I come in the house, he'd leave. He'd, he would go in the other room. He wouldn't stay in the same room with me. But after I told him what we what we was going to do, and he says, I guess there's no way of me changing your mind, right? And I says, no, there isn't. Okay, and then changed. He started treating me decent after that. Uh, well, my divorce, I'd put in for it, but it, he was so concerned about it that he had an attorney check up the courts and so I'd like to see if I had filed for a divorce. And if, if I hadn't, if he's going to have me thrown in jail. And they just happened that I had uh, sometime before that I'd filed a divorce but uh, there's a time span in between the divorce and the finalization of the divorce right and so he checked and found out that yeah I, I did but I'd, I told Carol that I had these two little boys and if I ever got a chance to get them that I was going to get them and ask her if it made any difference to her and she said no which I don't think she really realized the impact of that, <laughs> of how hard that was actually going to be, because she hadn't had no kids or anything, didn't know anything about them. And uh, so I was working at a Chevron station up in Salt Lake, and, and my folks was tending the kids because she'd called one day and, and told me to come and get the kids she couldn't take care of them anymore and I said okay and the next day she called and says forget it and I said okay well then a week later she told me the same thing and I said well there must be a problem out there so I'm going to come and get the kids and you're not going to stop me said, well, I don't care I'm not going to be here and I didn't care I had no feeling for it at all and so I got on another bus and went back there and, and uh, went to get the kids and they were with her with her mother and, and like uh, Donnie he was uh, wasn't quite two and Carl wasn't quite four and 
So I went to get them, and and I went in their washroom to get, to see if I could find some clothes for them. And the clothes had been in the washroom so long that they was maggots in them. And so I I just left everything and went down and bought them different clothes and stayed at my buddy's house overnight and caught a train the next day coming back to to Utah and I, I got to Chicago Illinois and the train had to stop all printer all day long so here I had these two little kids and just killing time till the train was to head back west again and and uh, I put them on a cart and I pushed them all over that that depot all day long finally the time to load up came and we went and like Donnie he, he's still on the bottle and so I had to fix this to feed him to feed Carl and and it was funny because all the way across the United States nobody offered to help with those little kids until I got coming down Provo Canyon then the lady asked me if she could help me, and and I said, "No, we're we're almost there now." So I got them here and, and took them right to my folks' place in Delta, and then I had to turn around, and go back up there, and go to work at the surf station again. But we had talked about it a lot, and finally, uh, my divorce was going to be final on the 12th of December and we decided that we wanted to get married so we'd be together on Christmas so it was final on the 12th of December and then on the 15th of December we were married and uh, like I say it it's been a struggle with Carol for well, the first 10 years anyway because a lot of the women she knew thought that she knew a lot about raising kids because now she's got two kids but she never had kids before <laughs> didn't know what to do about them but but uh two little kids for somebody with no experience can be trying it can be trying even if well, you've had kids we never uh, never told the kids that she wasn't their mother until it was about 10 or 12 years old. They didn't remember? Well, Carl, he just accepted being one of the, as a fact, you know. And it did, didn't much bother him, but Donnie. From then on, for the next several years, he did his very best to get us separated, to get us divorced. Uh, he'd tell her that she's not a his mother and he he didn't have to do what she wanted him to do and on and on and that went on until he was in high school and finally by that time we had we'd moved up to Lehigh and and uh, we got in a big battle one time and he just left and went up Salt Lake and lived with Peg for the rest of the time in school and of course my niece's son he was on his own too so the two of them together living with Peg and she didn't have any 
really parental controls that told them you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. So they just did whatever they wanted to. And uh, that went on for a long time until each one of them, uh, the one boy finally spent five years over in Gunnison because of some, I don't know if it was drug problems or something. Uh, both of them had went enlisted in the army and sent to Germany and and uh, Donnie come back and finished his service two years and the other one he got an undesirable discharge uh, Donnie he got involved in the drug scene and and for a lot of years he was addicted to meth and a lot of other things and but one time he decided that he needed to do something to get away from it. So he come down here. I was working as security out at the gold mine out on Drum Mountain. And uh, he come out there and stayed with me. And he thought that if he went and got someplace where he wasn't around drugs, that he could get off of it. So he... He'd mentioned about if he got to Washington State and got on one of those fishing boats, they'd generally go out for several weeks before they'd come back. And uh, he thought, well, if it was a situation where he couldn't get at any drugs, he could win it. And so I asked him if he, if I got him transportation to Seattle, would he want to go? And... Uh, he said, yeah. Well, I was bringing him into town one day, and we got in a, a hassle because I I told him, you're going to have to pay for everything you do. And we got in an argument, and he called me everything, every trashy name you can think of, coming into town, and I dropped him off at Peg's house out of Sherwood Shores, and and uh, her and a, a friend of her, a lady friend of hers in there, she, they let him know just how bad that was. But he never really apologized for it. Just I accepted the fact that it's probably had a lot of drug influence with it. But uh, So anyway, I bought him a bus ticket to Seattle, hauled him over to the bus station in Fillmore, Give him a hundred dollars, and I said, "Now that's the end of the barrel. There ain't no more. Don't call for it, cause you won't get it." Okay. Well, he got on the bus and went to Seattle. Well, when he got to Seattle, there wasn't no fishing boats there <laughs> to get a job or to get away from it. So, hundred dollars doesn't last very long when you're on meth and smoking and everything, and, and so he ran out of money and. There for a long time, he was eating in soup lines, sleeping in culverts. Uh, he had went completely to the bottom of whatever barrel he was in. And uh, finally, because he'd been in the military, he went to the VA, and they had a rehab program there in Seattle, and he got into it. And uh, whoever thinks they can get off drugs really quick is crazy. They can't. But he was there 
in that rehab program for a year. Well, it, his driver's license was trashed because of some of the junk that he'd done up there in Salt Lake. And but the counselor that he had there at the VA, he went to bat for him and got it figured out how he could get his driver's license fixed or cleared up. Going to cost him eight hundred dollars, but he says he could do it. Well, the thing that directed Donnie a little bit uh, in the rehab was he started reading the Bible, uh, and he read it a lot, and and he started going to a different denominational church, which uh, that's what he understood, I guess, but. Uh, Anyway, after a while, he got a, a release job where he could make some money on his, on his own, but he'd, he'd got hooked up with a carnival that he'd go help him put up tents and stuff when they was having, a, having their shows, and, and so they'd pay him for that. Well, he, he got the money and paid to have his driver's license fixed, and then the... the his counselor got him hooked up with a, some trucking company and he got a CDL license. He started driving a truck from, Calif or from Seattle to California and back. And that went on and finally he got another job driving to Utah back. And, uh, and he, but he was off drugs, and he did that for a while. And but the paranoia that he that he generated being on drugs, he just knew that the federal people were following him. He says there'd be cars following him out of California, and they'd be behind him all the way from California to Utah. And I says, why would somebody just do that for one guy? I don't know, but they're they're doing it for me well his part of the drug scene was he was a collector for the Salt Lake cartel up there that if people owed them money for drugs he'd go get the money hmm. and he'd been shot at with shotguns and everything else and, and uh, so anyway one day he told me the biggest problem he had he says it's just lonesome he says there's nobody to go to or to look forward to seeing you. And I, I told him, I said, well, there is somebody for everybody. And uh, he said, well, I'd like to think so, but he says it's pretty lonesome. And, and I says, well, you got to do part of it. I says, you're never going to find a rose in a trash can. If you want to go to find a rose, go to a rose garden. Go where the roses are. And I don't know that he ever thought too much about that, but uh, he started driving over the road. One day he'd be in California, and a week later he'd be in New York. And then he was training drivers to to do different over-the-road jobs. And, and uh, finally he was coming from... Washington State going to to Salt Lake and out there north of Tooele they have that 
there's a truck stop out there. I need to stop there to get lunch or breakfast or whatever. And, and he got talking with this girl in there, and, and she was in the process of going through a divorce because it hadn't been really good. And she had two daughters, and 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 she was Korean, but she was adopted by an LDS family here in Utah. Well. Every time he'd he'd stop there, he'd stop and see her, and and uh, it finally got to where it was serious enough that they decided that they'd get married, but uh, uh, had to wait till her divorce was final, and so they did that. And uh, these kids were smart kids, you know. Just uh, they haven't they never was associated with the church in any way much uh, and the girl that Donnie married her family was LDS but she wasn't very active in it at all matter of fact she was a bit a an agnotic about it you know she didn't want anything to do with it well they was married for huh, probably Not talking. There you go. Is it on? It's on now. Hmm. But uh, he had everything that he related to as far as religion had to do with what he read in the Bible when he was in on rehab. Right. Uh, he didn't know anything about the Book of Mormon or or much about the teachings, and and I think he had been a teacher what he had been ordained to but uh, not very many years ago then uh, his one stepdaughter uh, after she got up where she's graduated from high school uh, she told him that she wanted to be baptized in the LDS church and so he called me up and wanted to know if, if I'd do that and I thought yeah but that she won't be baptized in Twila, and uh, so we went up there one Saturday and and baptized her, and and, and that I think started having a little bit of effect on Donnie and his wife. Uh, Was she so still living at home with them? Hmm? Was she still living at home with them? Well, yeah, she died just before she got married. Okay, uh, but. Uh, the other, the other older daughter, she never did get into that. Uh, matter of fact, she had, she had a baby out of wedlock and had it adopted back east, and they still keep in touch with each other. But uh, and that baby's probably seven, eight years old now. But. Uh, The thing that happened with Donnie, he got thinking about it, and uh, he decided one day that he would go to his ward in Idaho Falls, where they're at, and and it just happened to be on a, a fast Sunday, 
And so he went there, and, and he had never been to a fast Sunday year, or he's never spoken in church or done anything in church. Since he was a little kid? His whole life. You right. Know, and, and so these people are bearing their testimonies, and f he says for some reason or other, he says, I had the urge to get up and tell them about his drug experience. And so he did. He got up. And I don't know how much time he took, but it was enough that it had an impact on the congregation. <laughs> right. Because afterwards, as people come up to him and and says uh, thanked him for his testimony, and and he says they said we needed to hear what you said because evidently they had children going through the same thing, and they didn't think that there's any hope or any chance, you know. And so. They, I guess one of the stake presidency was there, and they called him up and wanted to know if he wouldn't come and take a few minutes in state conference. <laughs> and, and like I say, he never talked in church. He didn't. Right. But he says he had made up his mind that whatever the Lord asked him to do, that's what he's going to do. Because he says he couldn't have made it without it. And so... On the state conference, he did that, and then uh, the bishop came up to him and he says, "We need to ordain you to an elder." And he says, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> <laughs> so they did, and then it wasn't two or three weeks after that they called him in and said, "We'd like you to be the Sunday school president in the ward." And he says, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> he says, but if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'll do. <laughs> so he was that for about you know, a little over a year. And uh, he, says, I don't know. he says, I don't know any more now than I did then. He says, but if they wanted me to do it, that's what I was going to do. Well, they kept going to the ward. And uh, finally... They decided that their two girls now were old enough to be baptized. Well, now he was able to take them and baptize them, and so his his two daughters, uh, now that he had the priesthood, he was able to baptize them. But they said, "Well, we decided we wanted to be sealed in the temple," so they made arrangements to go to the Bountiful Temple and be be married there and have the kids sealed to him and then because we were there and he's the one that tried to get us divorced for so many years and now he wanted to be sealed to Carol as his mom and so we went up there and uh, and we did that but his thinking is is because of where he was at and what he had gone through. Uh, nobody should lose hope. He says, that's always there. But he says, you might have to go through hell to get to it. But uh, uh, And now, he still drives truck. He drives a semi pulling three trailers from Idaho Falls, Salt Lake every night. Uh, plus 
making special trips into Boise, and he he drives semi a lot, and uh, I wouldn't even dare guess how many million miles he's been, but but he's never been back to the life that he had before he went through that rehab center, and uh, it's a credit to him. Yeah, his uh, his perseverance. He's he used to lie a lot, but he finally got to the point that that he recognized the fact that he lied. So, so uh, he made a commitment with himself: no matter how it hurts, don't lie. And so he don't. You know, he just part of his life that he's changed. But uh, uh, all of the, all of the kids so far. Have have been to the temple. Uh, Carl, when he was in the army, he, he was over in Germany, and him and his wife got married in the Swiss temple. Uh, and then Teresa and Dallas was married in the Salt Lake temple. And then Mindy was married in Manti Temple, but uh, just because they get married in the temple and they do all these things doesn't stop the problems. Nope. I mean, you still have problems. <coughs> it's just how you deal with them, what you what you take out of life, and what you put into it. But that's pretty much how we we got to where we're at but uh, in the time that that uh so i just want to thank my uncle for joining me today in this podcast and uh sharing his experiences he's had i really appreciate it so uh stay tuned for more episodes and if you want to go ahead and uh have a chance at making a, a future episode go ahead and go to anchor anchor.fm and uh, go to my podcast and you can leave a, a voice message there and I listen to them all and um, you can you can make it in in an episode uh, if you want to hear something specific uh, you can go in there and request it in there um, so anyway thanks and uh, we'll catch you later bye bye